The Arcade Report is a Final Plank media production, and you can find more of the team's work at finalplank.com. Atari was the most advanced army in the Blitzkrieg, the elite force. The people at Atari were incredibly talented and incredibly arrogant. Enormous success breeds inherent arrogance, and it's hard in a large organization to overcome that. The Atari boom is a unique case in contemporary times. When I got there in 78, the company was doing about $78 million in sales. Three years later, we were doing over $3 billion. We were the fastest growing company in the world. No company, no matter how well managed, can tolerate that amount of pressure. The numbers at Atari went something like 400 million, a billion one, a billion eight in three years. It grew so fast that it really outran its systems. When I got there, I don't remember the exact headcount, but let's say maybe it was 150. When I left, it was 12,000. To go from 150 to 12,000, it's a nightmare. The next year, the business started to slide right off the shelf. The American video game market in 1982-1983 crashed. Atari begun to fall apart as it lost its soul and heart. Perhaps it needs a new restart and branch on innovation. Yet its webs continue to sunder, losing chances with value plundered. What ideas came forth, I wonder, to bring, to bring such, such renovation. renovation? Atari pushed the game like they never had before. It didn't take long until people find it's not a good game. So people returned it to the store, and the uh, retailer tried to return it to Atari, and uh, it was chaos. Once a toy goes into the closet, it never comes out again. The E.T. flop triggered a domino effect on the whole business. One of the reasons it's known as one of the worst games of all time is not even because of the gameplay. One of the reasons it's known is because of the financial disaster that it seemed to have generated. We produced four million, and four million came back. I knew we were gonna have a terrible quarter. There were a lot of returns, along with millions and millions of other cartridges that weren't selling. A sense of panic started to spread through the ranks. Movies are gonna fail, records are gonna fail, and the minute you get a management that gets beat up the minute they have something that fails, you're dead, because they no longer think clearly. Ray Kassar felt he couldn't really rely on his team the way he used to do. There was a lack of really good product. No one was very creative. Suddenly, something happened. We all got depressed. We were doing so well, all of a sudden, because of something we had to do, we had this failure. And it was tough. It was very tough on all of us. Worse than that, gamers all over the country started to be less enthusiastic about video games. Pac-Man was a failure in delivering the most popular video game of the time, and then E.T. was a failure in delivering the most popular movie of the time. A lot of people said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. When the great video game crash in the early 80s happened, no one was spared the devastation. Publishers, whose games filled the shelves and droves at this point, were no longer able to generate demand for their titles. The stores themselves, seeing many of these games gathering dust from their lack of purchase, were frantically trying to return them, but to no avail. Many of the smaller companies, like US Games and Games by Apollo, simply didn't have the money to refund their unwanted cartridges back and they couldn't afford to make new ones to replace them. The gamble was just too great. 
and they already lost too much to justify pushing on through this newfound desert. Publishers shuttered doors, and displaced programmers soon followed. In the singeing winds and dry heat that followed many stores, left with cartridges that couldn't be returned to shut down companies, they were forced to bargain with what they had to curb the deep loss they were about to take. Games once worth $35 were haggled down to $5, and most stores that independently sold video games had to close down. As one domino fell over another, computer and arcade games suffered heavily as a result, as retailers shrank or demolished their gaming section or their stores. With rugs ripped out of their feet and pillars toppled, one company took the worst hit of them all, our very own Atari. Much like the tsunami that followed an earthquake, their life-shattering losses rippled devastatingly throughout the entire industry. One man, our Atari CEO Ray Kasser, must have had many a dark days looming over him as he sat at his opulent desk, littered with executive toys and mandatory motivational posters. Having a hand in almost every pot that served Atari Doom, with their owner Warner handling the rest just as perilously, the consequences of his livid decision-making a barbaric mistreatment of his employees have finally come down to bear on him. His days left, ticking down from a time bomb since detonated, were dwindling. He knew that. Whispers from the brass at Warner were certain to reach his desk, and while the business may have not been a literal inferno, it must have looked so in his mind. Yet not all was lost for the world that enjoyed the hue and delights of Pixels. Companies like Commodore and Tandy had computer flying off the shelves, giving hope for computer games. Nintendo, as we'll talk later, was just adjusting its tie as it eyes North America, ready to give new life to console gamers. As new heroes step into the fray of a destroyed gaming world, should we grieve for the death of Atari? I think not. Atari, down but not out, didn't hear no bell. They may not be the titans they once were just a year or two ago, but they had a little fight left in them. They carried the mantle of responsibility, after all. And who better than for this anti-hero to stand up and give more than a last stand? It's time to show those who crawled at their feet and scavenged from their war chests why they are Atari. It was time for them to eat humble pie and put on their best masks they own. And even if they look worse for wear, they had a few tricks up their sleeves. If there's one thing they were good at, it's to strike first where riches can be found and yoink other companies' ideas before they can blink. What magic trick will they dazzle the audience on this duct tape stage? We'll be finding out on episode 3 of the Arcade Report, Atari Redux. Thank you for listening to this one, by the way. I really appreciate you. Yes, you. I really appreciate it. Love you. Thank you. My name is Tyler Vitito, and if you haven't yet, please treat yourself and listen to episode two where we discover the roots of Atari and the subsequent digging up the entire company tree. Atari, having hit after hit come out for consoles and arcades alike, began to make deep capitalistic mistakes that began to unravel the empire they had built. By 1983, the shifting sands of Atari turned it from a world wonder to a wandering desert. As Atari crash-landed into the negatives in the terrible game-flooded year of 1983, they had accrued almost $500 million in debt. Yet in a few record moments like these, companies do tend to bounce. 
recovering losses and pulling themselves up miraculously by their bootstraps. With a strong head of management, or the replacement that can do so, and some meddling innovation that recapture the world in a new light, things can happen. And things did happen. Ray Kasser, the CEO of Atari at the time, needed to be the person to drag the sinking ship out of the water. He, however, was in hot water of his own. As E.T. was prepping the bomb during the Christmas of 1982, and was sure to blow holes in the company's share prices, Ray actually sold 5,000 shares of his own, 23 minutes before an earnings report could actually lay out the truth. This earnings call, meant to initially show that they were going to see a 50% growth for that period, showed that only 10-15% to was barely managed, and that's a stretch. As E.T. anchored the company into further losses, they were only seeing the preview of their future. This, in turn, scared the living crap out of shareholders, and stock plummeted 40% within the week. Now, if there's one group that's better at smelling money than a U.S. private corporation, it's the U.S. government. The Security and Exchange Commission, or SEC, began investigating at full tilt and slapped an accusation of insider trading on Ray's desk. Two stories floated out of this moment, and I have yet to figure out which one's the more likely scenario. The first is that Ray was fined $80,000 for his misdeed, and the other is that he reached an agreement with the SEC and returned the profits without denying anything. Turns out, 5,000 shares was only a drop in the pool for Ray, and therefore not a serious attempt to jump off the ship, and the SEC withdrew all allegations of him committing financial crimes. I cannot confirm nor deny which story is true thanks to a thin layer of evidence to either direction, and thanks to the private hush-hush nature of such corporate events. Though, I leave it to the listener's discretion. How would the US government in the 1980s react to a rich person trying to make money on the sly? During this turbulent time, a life-changing contender approached the stage, and their name is Nintendo. Their current step in gaming history, the Game & Watch, was making small waves in Japan, but they were hoping to make their own entry of consoles to both Japan and the Western countries. With the entire economy shocked into oblivion, Nintendo was barely able to hoist their flagship console, the Famicom, into the Japanese market in mid-1983 to decent success. Needing someone to sponsor them into the more suspicious American audience, they approached Atari's Ray Kasser previously that year to begin a relationship into North America. The courtship blossomed with Ray as they worked into an agreement that they would host the Nintendo Enhanced Video System, eventually known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, for a hot release at the end of 1983 for a Christmas release. When Ink was to meet paper at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show, however, Atari cooled off from the deal, refusing to sign. Coleco, one of their main competitors at the time, was showcasing a demo of Donkey Kong on their upcoming computer system. While this is well and fine, the fact was that Nintendo made an exclusive contract with Atari and Coleco for computer and console licenses, respectively. Because the ColecoVision home console game could be played on their computer, Atari felt that the double-dipping was traitorous when they were supposed to be helping Nintendo as their American saviors. Yes, I said that, and I firmly believe that the level of pathetic pride was at stake here. It took a month to clear the air and resolve the mistrust, but the video game crash suddenly came to full fruition, and Nintendo lost their frontman Ray Caster to make the target launch. The deal pulled out, and Nintendo was forced to enter North America on their own terms a couple years later. 
be the one to witness the birth of the incredible Nintendo Entertainment System? The one to play with Rob, the extraordinary video robot, batteries not included. He helps you tackle even the toughest challenge. Will you be the first to raise the incredibly accurate Zapper and play games like Duck Hunt or action-packed Hogan's Alley and high-flying Kung Fu, each sold separately? Will you be the one to experience the Nintendo Entertainment System? Comes with Rob, Zapper, Control Deck, two controllers, Gyromite, and Duck Hunt. But wait, why did they lose Ray in the contracts? Well, he was fired. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Warner was already peeved with him when the company slid into the red, and July 1983 saw the departure of another figurehead of Atari. Desperate for a champion to step in, Warner found the perfect person to handle a problematic company with a by-all-means-necessary attitude. That person is James J. Morgan who worked extensively for the tobacco company Philip Morris as assistant director of marketing, notably one of the top billiards for the creation of Marlboro Man, the stereotypical image of cool cowboy fellow that you'll be if you buy their cigarettes. From one cancerous company to another, James Morgan was ready to take the stage. Yeah, I also said that. James immediately began a shakedown with Atari, trimming off projects like bits of fat to a steak reorganized the entire process of development of the arcades and computer consoles, and was all around on a good track. What James didn't know was that he was being positioned less of a CEO and more of a cleaning service. As he was building Warner's Atari into Natco, or new Atari company, Warner was quietly prepping a sale of most of the gaming company. Tremel Technology, with Jack Tremel getting back into the game, after a break from the computer industry involving the Commodore, had eyes on the computer in home console divisions for Atari. Jack Tremel was born in Poland in 1928 in a Jewish family, and he grew up through the German invasion. He survived the Holocaust after being sent to Auschwitz, and in 1947 moved over to the United States. There, he joined the army and trained to repair things like typewriters and other office equipment. He had built up the Commodore company initially as a typewriter manufacturer, and the business steadily grew as it found new iterations of products over the years. Typewriters, adding machines, calculators, and eventually computers. The Commodore PET, the first iteration of many, became succeeded by the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64, which were competitors to Atari at the time. Unfortunately for the company and his employees, and even one of the major investors that kept them afloat early on, Jack had an aggressive and controlling behavior with his company. Micromanaging every single detail that had a dollar amount to it, he demanded any expense over a grand to have his signature on the paper before it was approved. Apparently when Jack went on vacation, the entire operation would just stop. To add salt to the wound, he directly handled relations with the distributors and turned his executives into his own puppets, telling both how things were going to happen and to do what he says. As I'm sure you can guess, this did not go over well for either group. We will see this come back to bite them in the butt. I want to note at this point that a lot of criticism and controversy geared towards Jack is controversial itself in nature. Being a Jewish businessman who flourished in the business in the middle of the 20th century, many statements I've read specifically against him appear stereotypical in nature. Quotes I found from magazine reports called him stingy, penny pension, and always fighting to get the cheapest deal. Because of constant racial profile being the American norm at the time, and unfortunately very relevant to this day, I would like to caution the listener that takes some historically recorded complaints with a grain of salt. While admittedly there appears to be dozens upon dozens of accounts of him being, well, 
a stingy capitalist CEO, there may be some unfortunate side effect of people distrusting him due to his upbringing. That being said, he doesn't do himself much justice here. Here is Dave Needle, an American computer engineer who has several dealings with Mr. Tremel himself, and I think he speaks it pretty clearly what's going on here. Many people don't understand why putting something in Tremiel's hands is a bad idea. Um, anyone who has worked with him with their product understands completely. Anyone who has had a product that he has bought from them understands completely. Uh, Jack lived through the bad times of the war in the German prison camps, came out of that with the following philosophy. Uh, business is war. If you're not crushing your opponent, you're doing it wrong. The correct thing to do is squeeze them till they're dead. Never pay them any money. Take anything you can. Trick them any way you can. Things came to a head in January of 1984 after a bitter argument with his board of directors over how the company should be run. There was also possible talks about having Jack's three sons join the board at his insistence, which everyone else vehemently disapproved of. When the meeting looked like it would turn even more heated, Jack accused one angel investor, Irving Gould, of using the company as his own personal asset. Telling Irving, you can't do that while I'm still president, Irving, sick of all the toxic controlling behavior, said one word, goodbye. Seeing this as a savage affront to his ways, Jack gave one last hurrah to the 1984 Consumer Electronics Show to say that the Commodore had sold over a billion dollars worth of product to the world, and then he resigned from Commodore a few days later. While James Morgan, aka Tobacco Man, the successor to Ray, was starting to finally get Atari back into track for success and noticing the opportunities that were being missed, negotiations were happening behind closed doors on July 1st, 1984. Lasting until nearly midnight, a wildly bizarre deal was struck. The two divisions were now Jack Tremell's for $50 in cash and $240 million in promissory notes and stocks. This meant that most of Atari was sold for a green portrait of Ulysses Grant, a 20% stake in the future Atari company, and a boatload of IOUs. <laughs> the great fracture of Atari has begun, and it's now being piecemealed to different companies. The arcade division stayed with Warner for another year before it was sold to Namco in 1985. A division in the project still, Atari Tel, was sold off to Mitsubishi. Atari Tel was going to be an Atari phone-based division, but fell through into a suspended animation when talks of selling were on the table. Not soon after Mitsubishi bought the rights and prototype, they ordered it all destroyed, and the project never saw the light of day. By this time, Atari's two divisions had 80 domestic branches, so Jack felt it was necessary to shut a few down to help streamline the accounting. I say a few with heated cynicism, because he laid off the staff to almost every single one of those branches. Using what was left of old game inventory to remain afloat for a short time, he took the remaining staff and began making the Atari ST. This was the successor to one of Atari's older computer designs, the Atari XE, and featured a 16-bit program that competed directly with the Apple Macintosh. It shipped pretty darn well, especially in Europe. With 5 million units being sold, the MIDI ports in it meant that musicians all over in Europe could use it instead of their extremely expensive studio counterparts, and became popular for use by producers like Fatboy Slim, Tangerine Dream, and Derude. Despite this mild success, two ghosts of Jack's past came back to haunt him. The Commodore Amiga, from his old company, 
Alt sold the ST3 the 2. Jack's own reputation also resurfaced and bitter feelings with those he needed to work with to harvest popularity and sales. Retailers, still burnt by the fiascos involving Atari's previous stunts, like Pac-Man E.T., refused to give the hard-nosed Jack the light of day when he tried to bargain fiercely for better sales. While some people referred to working with him as like dealing with Attila the Hun back in the Commodore days, the rise of Star Wars in this time gave birth to new references to his reign. Steve Arnold of LucasArts compared him to Jabba the Hutt, and even people in Atari thought him akin to Darth Vader. Alongside the Atari ST came the 2600 Junior and the Atari 7800. Perhaps learning from the 5200's mistakes, they made the 7800 backwards compatible with 2600 games, and had a much better graphics chip. The 2600 Junior also had a similar look to the 7800, could play a large chunk of the games, and most importantly had a very budget price of under $50. With new games on its own, signed off by Atari itself as quality games, it came with a snazzy ad saying, The fun is back. The fun is back, as you can see, with the 2600 from Atari. Still under 50 bucks, but wait, there's more. There's a stack of new games at the video store. In real sports boxing, the action's rough. If you're gonna make it, you got to be tough. Midnight Magic is an arcade blast. Like a pinball wizard, you got to be fast. Fire Solaris to protect your base. Then blast off into hyperspace. The fun is back, oh yes siree. New 2600 games from Atari. Despite the video game crash in its full wake, all three products performed remarkably well for the company, bouncing it from the negatives into a $25 million profit in 1986. Needing to make sure the mistakes of Atari's past doesn't repeat itself, they very specifically designed the consoles to play only new games that were greenlit by the company. This was done in a very shady way that we'll see in a minute with Nintendo. Atari has finally begun to learn the lesson of focusing on quality over the paycheck, and while Jack would still occasionally choke the company into submission, things were on the incline. Perhaps my harsh views on a capitalistic society were wrong, and I'll have to change my perspectives from here on out. Maybe being a jerk as a CEO and telling others to dance with them wasn't such a terrible strategy. Huh. Surely this attitude will bring Atari out of its hole of shame they had previously dug, with a light lemon drip of dominant but uh, loving control. Perhaps Atari will just make the leap into the stars like Amazon and Facebook. Nah, I'm just missing with you. Duff continues to bounce around like a raccoon on catnip. <laughs> because most major American outlets wanted nothing to do with Atari, two-thirds of the product were being sold in Europe. They needed a plan to brute force their product back into U.S. hands to help restore faith in the industry. To make this happen, Atari acquired consumer electronic retail chain Federated Group in 1987. With a cool whopping 67.3 million changing hands, over 60 stores in states like California, Texas, Arizona, and Kansas were now in Atari hands and could be used as the bouncing board for their computers and consoles. Take that, America! During the next couple of years, Atari would unveil and release a couple of different computers, including the 1040 STF and the Mega ST. Much as I would like to drill the details of each one into you, it would be better stated that they tried to focus their computers for graphic designers and more business-minded individuals, and unfortunately did not gather the steam needed to keep the production line going. While the computer side of the company might not be keeping up, Atari's total sales peaked in 1988, reaching a very respectable $452 million. 
Now, here comes the pickle of the decade. Remember that little division of Atari that Warner didn't sell, the arcade department? Namco had bought a leading share of that, and were effectively the owner of Atari Games, which was the arcade division that's very, very much separate from Chamel's Atari Corporation. So you got Atari Games, the arcade, and then Atari Corporation, the video games, and the computer. Atari games have been churning out arcade games with Atari licenses to both Japan and North America, and despite the initial concept that they are only supposed to stick to the coin slot platform, they were wanting to hop on the Nintendo Entertainment System. How was this allowed when the main Atari Corporation was making their own hardware is still not clear. Under the brand name Tengen, they released Tetris on the NES, which will be important here in a second. They also began releasing NES games on their own cartridges, and that's where a big fat lawsuit lands. Now this lawsuit lasts for almost three years, so I hope you don't mind if I jump forward with this a little bit. Remember when I said Jack Trammell's Atari developed a computer system where only new games they greenlit could play on their newer consoles? Nintendo originally did that same thing with their own blackout system, the 10 NES. Yes, the 10NES. Yes, I know it sounds like tennis, and there's a hysterically ironic reference in the Magnavox Atari lawsuit last episode. Nintendo's NES system had this mechanism under lock and key, and for good reason. Since no game could be played without tennis being put on the cartridge first, any NES game that was to be sold had to go to Nintendo first for quality assurance, who'd put them on the ROM of their own cleared cartridges and sold them back to the developer for a fee. Atari Prime loved this idea. For their own stuff. Namco's Atari Games hated it. Now, Atari Prime loved this idea because an oversaturated market of lackluster 2600 games was one of the crumbling pillars of their major downfall in 1983. If they had this technology, they could control what goes on their console exclusively and force the developers to produce better games, all the while getting a cut out of the pie. Namco's Atari hated it because it was made by Nintendo and therefore had to pay their competitor royalties for a game they didn't make. Now, for a past few years since 1986, Namco's Atari games had been trying to go full CSI on the tennis chip that made the handshake, learning the method of it communicating with the console, pulling them apart layer by layer, and literally putting it under a microscope to study the code for the chip. However, the whole process was an enigma for the company, and they had to become a licensee of Nintendo to sell their games on the NES in 1987. They did not like the fact that they had to pay Nintendo for every single cartridge, as well as an exclusivity contract that prohibited putting the game on the other consoles for two years, including their own. This will not do. Thinking they were well within a gray area of copyright territory, Atari Games sent their lawyers like winged monkeys to the copyright office, claiming that Atari as a whole was pushing copyright infringement with Nintendo and needed the source code of tennis as proof. The copyright office handed the code right over. Nice. And Atari Games laughed their way to the bank as they circumvented the chip by making their own, called the Tengen Rabbit. Nintendo flies off the handle at this betrayal and, and sought a motion against Atari Games for copyright infringement and Atari Games, again branded as Tengen for their NES titles, rebuffed back that Nintendo was committing copyright misuse to maintain a monopoly on the video game industry. The US court listened to both sides of the company's grievances, and in 1992, it was ruled as follows. Because the tennis chip was made by Nintendo, and it provides a creative locking mechanism, it was considered Nintendo property per the copyright on it. 
When Atari Games was doing lab experiments on the chip to try to reverse engineer a different way to unlock the handshake, they were protected in fair use, as the bypass code could have been markedly different. The courts know this because Nintendo showed and admitted that the chip could be unlocked using several different coding methods. Because Atari Games, and I'm so sorry I have to keep saying it like this, because I want to make sure everybody knows that this is basically a side story of a very separate Atari. Because Atari Games dirted their hands going to the copyright office and got the source code illegitimately, they were breaking copyright law by taking the exact same code Nintendo originally made and threw it into their own chipset, the Rabbit. This backhanded attempt cleared out any chance Atari Games had, with arguing Nintendo's monopoly stance, and was thrown out of court. Thus, Namco's Atari ate dirt for their malice. Very much for the response uh, which you've given me as far as the tapes are concerned from each individual store. I have learned quite a bit from these tapes. It helped me how to plan the future of Federated for 1989. Uh, some of the tapes were excellent, some of them were pretty bad, but that gave me an idea who I'm working with as far as those are concerned and what we need to correct. That was the whole idea, right? And why I want to be in touch with you on a weekly basis, on a personal basis, or through video, which because I have to know what's going on at all time. I can only improve, I can only respond to you what we need in these stores by you giving me the information. So the video once a week is a very important point. Back at Atari Prime, you, you know, Jack Trammell's Atari Prime. Please work with me here. Back at Atari Prime, during this heated legal debate, the retailer Atari bought had more skeletons in their closet than Jack Trammell had realized. An audit was ran on Federated Group, that retailer, post-purchase and found that there was $43 million of adjustment tied to the buried accounting books for the retailer, lowering the value of the company by a wild $33 million. Poor Atari was just trying to find planks of wood to put their games on and they were being screwed left and right. By their first year under Atari, Federated Group reported a loss of $67 million. And later that year, 1988, the FBI began investigating Atari for trying to secretly resell DRAM chips from Japan without consulting import laws. Being pummeled for money left and right over the whole ordeal, Atari sold off the cursed retailer in 1989. It was around this time that Jack himself was starting to feel the wear and tear on his mind and body, trying to handle the company alone. Realizing that he needed to lead the show from an easier role, he put his son, Sam Trammell, as the president and CEO, while he took on the role of chief financial officer. With the son as CEO and father as CFO, both realized that if they continued this downwards trend, the company was doomed. Doomed. In a last-ditch effort that captured the end of the 80s in their own twisted limelight, Atari released what appeared to be a glimmering sunray of hope in the form of a handheld. With a legal headlock with Nintendo underway over with Atari Games, September 1989 saw Atari challenge the freshly released Game Boy with their own Atari Lynx. And boy, did this thing rock. I love this thing. Developed initially by a company called Epix, that's E-P-Y-X, this handheld was already in full design by 1987. With it ready to go into full production early 1989, Epic sought out a big company ready to scoop this beautiful piece of hardware to call its own. Nintendo and Sega both shut it down, having been working on their own handhelds. 
But Atari was too easily tempted to buy their way into a new submarket. The two companies struck a deal where Atari would handle making it and ensuring it danced across TV commercials, while Epix would handle the software part of it. And one of those ads starred a young Toby McGuire trying to sneak a school bathroom break trying out the new Wicked handheld. Hey, Mr. Block, can I go to the bathroom? Two minutes. Introducing Links from Atari, the color video game you can get away with. Well, sometimes. And then Epix declared bankruptcy. Wait, what? Well, <laughs> well, what the heck? Like a dying mother passing down her newborn to the strange father, Atari looked around in a panic and purchased Amigas to develop software from Jack's old friendly company, Commodore. I want to point out here that the company Amiga had a stringent history between the old Atari Jack Trammell, and Commodore. It's a dramatic and backstabbing tale that would serenade just how much Commodore's executives hate Jack, but as I'm trying to keep my best to focus on Atari, I felt it was a story too personal to bring in here. If you think I'm wrong and you want to hear more about a bunch of petty pin pushers trying to drag each other to the mud during the video game depression, tweet at me at two times Tyler and hit me with hashtag release the Amiga and I'll send out a bonus mini-episode about the bare-knuckled slugfest that happened there. So anyways, the Atari Lynx. It was glorious for its time. It was a hybrid 8-bit and 16-bit handheld that came with a colored LCD screen and backlit display lights. It allowed Link up to 15 other units for multiplayer. Which I should add, most Lynx games only allowed up to 8, but still! Imagine all those game cables linking up in this mm, nightmarish Christmas light tangled mess and playing games in mass in 1989 with backlit screens. With the 4096 color palette inset in the graphics processor, which ran pseudo 3D technology, by the way, this thing made the original Game Boy look like a 1940s television. Selling for $179.95. I wish I could have been there to witness such a salivating, mind-blowing piece of hardware reaching the shelves. Not even a couple of years previous and the world was trapped in a pixelated sea of games, and the Lynx just unleashes a whole new level of design. On some Atari Lynx games, you can link up four players, but there's only ever one winner. Atari Lynx, the portable video arcade. Atari Lynx has an option switch, so you can play at twice the speed. Atari Lynx, the portable video arcade. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish so hard that this was the world's defining return of Atari. That despite its peckish moments of glory and downtrodden defeat, the Lynx was so earth-shatteringly popular that Atari was synonymous with video games once more. Just looking and comparing this to Nintendo's original Game Boy, which came out a couple months later, you can see which one was the future of handheld gaming. But it was not meant to be. You see, and I'm saying this with such chagrin, that a lot of issues followed the conceptual release of the Lynx that the Game Boy was able to wiggle past by. The Lynx got kneecapped in the production department when supplies got shorted for the handheld. 
only 50,000 were able to be sold in a limited release in New York, which thankfully most were happily bought out for Christmas. Over the next couple of years, sales eked out, hitting 800,000 sales by 1991. The final number has been left in obscurity, but estimates show that by the time it was retired in 1995, around 2 to 4 million total sales were made. Unfortunately for the Lynx, Nintendo held their cards close to their chest and their relative cheapness paid off. Because the Game Boy was less pricey, more easily produced, and had a longer battery life, it had longer legs for the basic needs gamers wanted from a handheld game. While the Lynx showcased games like Road Blasters, Chips Challenge, and Rampart, the Game Boy came packed with the ever-popular Tetris and had a whole slew of first-party titles bang the list over the years. Trying to seize the initiative and work on Nintendo's strategy, Atari made the Lynx 2 in July 1991, showcasing an even bigger market strategy on the TV, a slimmer and lighter build, and a more efficient battery. It even came with the option to turn off the backlit screen to save on power. To top it off, the Lynx 2 dropped from a $180 price tag to just $99, putting it in a more cost-effective range of its competitors. In everything I can access from my armchair historian perspective, the only thing I could say that it needed to make this the biggest deal in the early 90s was some banger games. Because the console was pushing well beyond its times with its advanced technology, developers were having a difficult time to develop 3D-like games for the handheld while still getting the green light from Atari. In 1991 alone, only three third-party games were able to get past the yellow tape onto the handheld. Wix, Robotron 2084, and the Fidelity Ultimate Chess Challenge. The other 17 were made directly by Atari themselves, making this console fiercely dependent on the first-party work of the company. Now, Jack Trammell probably loved this, seeing how he wanted to make sure every single detail possible was ran by him and his son directly. This meant he also had to push in a way few people could, leading a large corporation. Feeling the pushback of the Game Boy's popularity, Atari decided it was time to take their handheld's firepower and use that strategy back in the console playing field. Some of you believe your system is the most advanced in the universe. Let's review the numbers. Sega Genesis is 16 bits. 3DO is 32 bits. The Atari Jaguar is 64 bits. Which is more advanced? Clifford! Hmm? 16 and 32 are less than 64. So with 64 bits, 3D graphics, real-world animation, and lightning speed that you can only get with Jaguar? Which is more advanced? Clifford! Can you repeat the question? Jaguar! 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 The Atari Jaguar was lauded by the company as the first video game console with a 64-bit processor. Granted, it was really two 32-bit processors tied together, but, you know, devil in the details. Slamming into the Sega Genesis and the SNES release that year, it came packed with Cybermorph, which is a 3D third-person plane fighter that gives off strong Star Fox vibes. The company that developed the console, Flare Technology, had built the system from the ground up after Flair convinced Atari to abandon the much more tempered project, the Atari Panther, which would have been more on the same level of graphic and computer power as the SNES. This would have been their third canceled project in a row, but they believed that 3D graphics were the future. Rushing the technology to implement a 3D graphics system for the Jaguar came at a cost, however. Because it was being implemented rather than the original development, the multi-chip setup on the motherboard caused hiccups in the system and created a bunch of bugs in the system UI, and the development kit needed to make games on it were god-awful for both first and third party. 
no one could build a game for this. With the Atari Jaguar on the market for the first year and a half, sales were only reaching tens of thousands, while their competitors were shooting into the millions. With only 50 games coming out in its entire lifetime, few people wanted to pick up the plucky console that looked amazing, but felt dodgy at best with fewer games to choose. When the Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation hit the field in 1995 and featured a plethora of eye-popping 3D games, the Jaguar hadn't even sold 150,000 consoles. The Jaguar was a little bit more successful than the cancel Atari Panther. This part of the brain controls the subject's emotions. Hey, get off my lawn! This part controls hunger. Hey, you, uh, you gonna eat that? This controls sexual impulses. This controls rational thought. Why would I buy a 32-bit system for $300 when I can get a 64-bit Jaguar system for 149 <laughs> Atari Jaguar, 64-bit, 149 bucks. Knock it off! It was around this time that Sam Trammell suffered a heart attack, and he had to step down from the demanding role as president, meaning old Jack had to take the stage once more. He was 73 at the time, and well past the retiring age, and with the Jaguar being discontinued, the only thing left at Atari's disposal were games. In January of 96, Atari Interactive was formed to challenge the PC market of games as their least resisted territory, but the Tramiel family lost the spirit of the industry. You can see this after they sued Sega in late 1993 for using Atari-based technology for the Sega Genesis and Game Gear, notably horizontal scrolling on a video game display. End quote. That's right. Atari sued for the special way characters moved left and right on a screen. The motion got denied because it wouldn't damage either side enough to be malicious, but Sega did pay out, to the tune of $50 million for license rights and another $40 million in Atari stock. To further keep the peace, Sega would also allow five of their games to be cross-licensed over to the Atari system. The Jaguar. The thing was, even though Sega did offer a series of games to be ported over, Nothing was incredibly noteworthy. No Sega game ever came over to the Jaguar because of the Tramels. It just wasn't worth it. Realizing it's time to jump ship, the Atari name was being stripped from the walls of buildings as Jack made a deal with JTS, a hard disk drive manufacturer. Because Atari was the more expensive company, it was a lucrative reverse merger that combined the two on February 13th, 1996. This was the official end for Atari as a company as their staff was dismissed, had quit, or transferred over to JTS's corporate. The Atari Interactive made for PC games was dissolved with gusto. No more games were being developed or announced, and the Atari name finally sunk into the water. We won't hear the name associated with console or computer games for almost two more years. Namco's Atari Games, which was falling into obscurity in the past few years, was up for sale in April of 1996. Nolan Bushnell, yep, the godfather of Atari, tried to swoop in and claim the arcade business back, only to be outbidded by WMS Industries. WMS, who was owned by Williams, Bali, and Midway Arcade Brands, successfully bought the rights to Atari Games' namesake in arcade games. Within a few short years, however, Atari's game was renamed Midway Games West Inc., and Atari's name was wiped off the map. Atari was officially dead. For now. I want to take a moment to reflect on all the confusion, because, you know, who owned what, who hated who, what lawsuits meant what, 
It's easy to say that when it came to our Pong creator, that turbulent is the go-to word for the past two decades. With the name being exchanged between companies so many times, almost a dozen occasions before this episode ends, people took the brand and reshaped it into their work culture. Nolan Bushnell crafted an arcade icon out of the clay, whereas Ray Kasser used it as a chest to carry the gold. Through Jack Trammell, it was a throne to sit and dictate, while through Namco it was a trophy of a prized catch. Perhaps this can be said of most game companies at the time, but Atari is a good example of a dream initiative, that unsustained greed and naive desire twisted and turned into a concept of a counterfeit money machine. People trying to skip the steps of building a foundation for a long-lasting company and going straight to the megalomaniac mindset of being entitled to money simply for peddling the name. While it would be impossible to psychoanalyze each and every person responsible for the ups and downs of Atari and its reincarnations, narcissism appears to be a reoccurring role. But when I rag on the industries each time they crop up, I do pause and wonder what their day-in-day life must have been like. When Ray Kasser told those developers that they were nothing, did he go home to his estate to admire the art in his walls? When Nolan Bushnell began separating himself from Ted Dabney, did he ever wonder what would have happened if he didn't drive him away so soon? Did Jack Tramella ever feel regret for the way he drove his employees into the ground over at Commodore and Atari? Such questions will never get answered, as most of the people have long since been deceased. But I believe it is important that we know that they were exactly that. People. Whether or not the people that made up the whole of Atari throughout the years would agree is a different matter. But these leaders were the company's foundation. And a foundation built on a person crumbles when they give up or pass away. Atari, however, does live on. Kinda. So we know in 1996, this hard drive company, JTS, owned Atari, as it is, and it's not seen for almost a couple of years. In March 13th of 1998, the hard drive company JTS sold off the Atari name and its acquired assets to Hasbro for a paltry $5 million. Now called Atari Interactive, the brand is slowly cooked in a video game pot roast as software developer Infograms took over Hasbro in late 2000. Infograms announced the revival of Atari and reinventing the brand to generate some buzz in October of 2001. Sounds familiar. Games like Splashdown, MX Rider, and Transworld Surf were to be launched with Atari's name slapped over the box art. V-Rally 3, Neverwinter Nights, and other games would also be heralded with Atari as the creator. In 2003, Infograms, which was based in France, began renaming their U.S. and European operations to Atari Inc. and Atari Europe, respectively. So now we have Atari Inc. They also took the original Atari entity from Hasbro and reaffirmed it Atari Interactive once more. Keeping their Infogram's name the same for their French headquarters, they wanted to convince the world that Atari was indeed back, even if it was mostly a marketing stunt. It's from there that Atari was made into a puppet show horse for several business ventures. In 2004, Atari began to release the Atari Flashback console series, which had the original 2600 design. As of right now, there's 10 series of these, with each adding more and more games to its database, the latest one released in 2019. 
I would say the first few didn't sell like they had hoped because Infograms was on the verge of bankruptcy for the next few years, and forcing the pawn off intellectual properties and studios left and right, such as the Civilization series. By 2007, they had fired most of Atari's directors and a fifth of the workforce, reporting a net loss of $70 million that year. It didn't help that the contracting deals they drummed up with the excitement began falling through, such as Epic Games offering the published Atari titles. Hasbro even bought back their video game rights back from Atari for $65 million. It was like watching VIPs buying lifeboats to exit the Titanic. Come 2008, Infogrames secured its ownership of Atari permanently by buying all the remaining public shares. We'll ignore the little fact that Atari's stock fell so low, under a dollar, that the stock exchange was removing Atari from the market. And Atari also got Cryptic Studios, which focused on MMORPGs? Nothing came out of it, but okay, sure. Maybe we're a step away from World of Pawncraft. In 2009, Infograms had sold off all attempts for Atari in Europe over to Hasbro, and announced it was going to invest in the online scene. With this, Infograms fused all of the Atari names into the Super Saiyan name of Atari S.A. In the words of the CEO, Jim Wilson, We've gotten rid of the infograms and Atari duality, the confusion around that. We are one simplified company, under one management team, under one brand. As someone who has been juggling every version of the Atari brand since this started, I personally want to thank him for resolving this nightmare scenario. At this point, Atari SA was deep into debt. Blue Bay Holdings, who was in charge of managing this crippling amount, had someone join the board as their representative in 2010. Who would have thought that it would have been none other than Nolan Bushnell himself? Even Nolan remarked that this was just another marketing stunt to stave off bankruptcy. But even if it was for only just a few short years, our favorite Bushnell was once more one of the guiding hands of Atari's future. In 2011, Atari goes full hog on releasing their arcade and 2600 games onto mobile phones. While the app was free and came with Missile Command, you could also buy games in packs of four for a mere dollar, or a quarter apiece. Eh? You could also buy all 100 titles for only $10. There's a cool ad for it, but all you'll hear is some funky techno music and sound effects if I post it here. So enjoy the background music for a second. Well, uh, hmm. Turns out selling the entire game library they had wasn't going to save them, and in 2013, Atari and most of its branches filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Whoops! After sitting in a hole for a year, they bounce out with what I believe is the most buck-wild, bat-crap crazy scheme I have seen to date. Buckle in, folks. It's gonna be gambling time. Though 2014... Atari says some foreboding scary words about how they plan on focusing on the new audiences, specifically the LBGT, social casinos, real money gambling, and YouTube. You know, the four pillars of video game success. This topic gets shelled for almost six years as the remaining ten, yes, count them, ten people on Atari are fixing for something amazing. I'm using that word as a placeholder until I can find a better word. If you still hear the word amazing, it was because I was still too dumbfounded to elaborate further. In the meanwhile, in trying to keep grounded in the gaming industry, we see an announcement in mid-2017 about a new Atari console. 
Yes. Not some nostalgic callback, not some gimmick, <clears throat> uh, but a true blue Atari console called the Atari Box. Yes, that's the name. Comes with the inspiration of the 2600 with two different models of the traditional wood grain and a modern glass front to it. It was going to be built with HDMI output, USB parts, and an SD card slot and a Linux operating system. Perhaps nostalgic for the older crowd and modern for today's televisions and game market in general, I politely applaud the console for somehow making it in today's times. They specifically warned the consumers that it needed to be supported via crowdfunding first if there was going to be any chance of it happening, however, and the backers were essentially going to be beta testers before it hits the public market. Backers got their consoles a few years later in 2020, and we're currently waiting on the result on that. Speaking of 2020, boy did Atari really dip their toes in new fields. January didn't even finish in 2020 when they announced a joint venture with GSD Group to begin building Atari hotels. The first one, in Phoenix, Arizona, the retirement capital of the US, wink wink, broke ground in mid-2020. With VR and AR technologies being the main theme of the hotels, they plan to make your hotel stay into an, ex into an exclusive digital experience for all ages, and hope to release more in Las Vegas, Denver, Chicago, Austin, Seattle, San Francisco, and San Jose. I'm willing to guess that GSD Group is bankrolling most of this one. But who knows? Atari was living in the future, and for a short time, Atari could live the future through you. Hello again, YouTube. Today, we're going to talk about a well-known brand that's building out their metaverse platform on the Ethereum blockchain. So find a joystick, and let's check out the next gem that could earn you some meta millions. A token that will power the future of the interactive entertainment industry? Well, today we're going to talk about that token, and it's called Atari Token. Yes, named after that Atari. The popular video game company has launched uh, their own cryptocurrency. How's it going guys? It's Irfan EJ here and in today's video I'm going to be talking about a very interesting NFT crypto game that goes by the name of Atari Token and for all those doubters that think that this could potentially be a scam coin, here's the thing, this is definitely not a scam project. Uh huh, okay because their team is fully docs and other than the fact that their team is fully docs the Atari name has actually been out for a very long time and when I say for a very long time as you can see right here Atari has initially came out since 1972 or somewhere around that time hey folks how do you feel about cryptocurrency digital assets blockchains and nfts hope it's a mildly enthusiastic response because welcome to decentraland a website marketed as the holy land of all the good stuff. For those who are about to be miffed, confused, or have other controversial feelings, picture this. Imagine, someone made a virtual world a la video game that used graphics between the PlayStation and PlayStation 2. It had online functionality, could interact with other people, even play games or watch movies together. PlayStation Home, am I right? In March 2021, Atari, after having just scraped itself out of financial purgatory, has a virtual casino built into this Decentraland where you could gamble through their Atari-themed games. Well, well, there's not really Atari games, just a lot of the name Atari everywhere, using their own branded cryptocurrency, the Atari Token. 
This would be through the mana-based Ethereum blockchain, and oh, oh god. If I were to ever swear vulgarly in this episode, this would be the one time I'd do it, folks. Atari railgunned past Mark Zuckerberg and pencil-dived into the gambling equivalent of a metaverse, teaming up with the ICICB Group, which I think is a blockchain investing company. You could join their PlayStation 1.5 game in real time and get free wearables, which was digital clothing for your avatar. And try your luck making the big bucks through a token while low-tier artists DJed in the center of the casino at set intervals. Wrecked out AI floaty robots would deal you cards at blackjack as you bet digital currency, amongst other common casino tables. Four months later in July 6, 2021, like a college kid coming off a of spring break high, Atari announces that trying to do NFTs in a blockchain-themed casino was a bonkers idea, and scraps the whole thing, losing $6 million in the process. In a statement on their website, Atari notes that it's done with the NFT model and wants to switch from its free-to-play game model on mobile to a premium price point as their future operations. Note here that they say nothing about the hotels. Hmm. This may be because they are also working with ICICB to develop more hotels, real ones supposedly, in locations out of the US like Dubai, Gibraltar, and Spain. With the online casino fiasco held in ICICB hands, Atari decided to terminate the whole relationship with the company on April 18th of 2022, just a few months from the release of this episode, and banned the blockchain from using the Atari name ever again. Thus concludes the bizarre story of Atari for now. Nowadays, Atari SA is mostly a shell company that contracts out the name to currently halted hotel models, seeing how COVID obliterated that business model, and there's been no sign of mention for the next Atari flashback. The last news article that talks about Atari SA is their announcement for a new Web3 initiative, meaning that their time with blockchain madness isn't quite over yet. With the Atari token sitting at a wealthy $0.0038 at the time of this episode, we'll see if the company tries to revitalize the token using Elon Musk or if they'll just make up a new one. On that, what advice would you give me in this position? Schopenhauer always talked about creative destruction and that new innovations often destroy old dominance. And that's what you kind of want to do because you're not going to beat Microsoft at their game. Right. But you can beat them at a game that you own. Yeah. But, you know, compared to some of the your predecessors, I think you've got the right mindset. Thanks, Owen. Yeah. I, I mean, do. I think deep down inside, you're, you're an architect. You want to create something. And the company is your vehicle. Thanks, Nolan. I mean, what do you try for these days in what you're doing? I do think of myself as a builder. I mean, I, I just like the act of building something and, and something sustainable. I think, like, for me, video games, they were never an escape, but they were this way to experience and interact in the world. And it just unlocked creativity. It unlocked, uh, it unlocked ideas and vocabulary and, and so many things for me. And, and it was just this really beautiful, positive experience. Yeah. I think games are connective. Communicating to other people, like, I see you, I hear you, like, we're in this together. And it becomes this, this connected, meaningful, joyful experience. That is quintessential Atari. Yeah. That's where the Atari games live today. Yeah. Wow. 
That's powerful. <laughs> That's cool. Well, thanks, Nolan. It's my pleasure. Always Good great fun. to see you. Yeah. A lot of my sources continued from last episode that include the history of Atari by the Gaming and Technology Variety Channel, Cold Fusion's video article called From Two Billion to Nothing, The Rise and Fall of Atari, several Nolan Bushnell's interviews as viewed on Cal Entertainment Speakers, Startup Grind, and VG Legacy, an interview with Ted Dabney and, and the early history of Atari as seen on Computer History Museum. Website articles that encapsulated the history and drama include ComputerHistory.org. Because a McDonald's article, IGN presents the history of Atari and the About Us page on Atari.com. Several other hundreds of personal accounts were reflected and reviewed, despite conflicting information, and most of these can be looked at personally with Wikipedia. Additionally, I want to credit YouTube channels Dr. Clips with a Z and Finn for their footage of the now-defunct Atari Casino, Retro Gamer Net for commercials of the Jaguar, Consumer Time Camps, and RetroTech TV for their Lynx ad footage, Adtari, A-D-Tari, for the 2600 Junior ad, Company Man and Flatlife for a better inside look at Atari post-1983, and Casino.org for their articles about the casino. I gathered information about the Nintendo and Sega lawsuits over at Copyright.gov and at Law.Justia.com. Lastly, I'd like to give a shout-out to what is known as 8-Bit Generation. They did a lot of legwork for something like this, and I just wanted to give a personal note that they did an amazing job. They were just fantastic. Uh, specifically, they had a documentary that came out that's called Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari. And if anybody wants to check it out, I highly recommend it. You can find it over on Amazon with their Prime Video. Please, give them some love. They did so much work for this, and I really, really, really enjoyed their work. You can find me at Twitter on Two Times Tyler, all letters, one word. I hope you enjoyed the third episode. It was a wild ride to go through the entire history of Atari, and can't wait to share with you more deep dives into the arcades of gaming history, but until then, don't sell your house and invest in the Atari token. I'll see you all later. <laughs>